Good. Well, I'd like to say thanks to a couple of people. First of all, um, Steve, for what he said. I assure you I'm no expert on Amos, so I want to correct you right off there. Um, secondly, to Stephen, uh, who's down at the back tonight for pastoral care this morning over the technology, telling me it'll be all right, you know. So am I getting a double? Is that better without that? Yeah. Um, so my task tonight is to have a look at this book of, of Amos. Um, I've been interested in this book for a, a long time, and um, I think particularly because as one of the prophets, it's, it's one of those books that stunningly speaks directly into our 21st century without any problem. I mean, if you go back and read Leviticus, really translating it over, you know, into your own lunchtime uh, with all those regulations about food and that, pretty difficult. But you, know, you, don't, you don't encounter that with, with uh, the minor prophets. Um, the real trick, I think, is to try to see how what they're saying comes out of the context in which they lived, and then our task is to see what that means for our own day. Um, so in one sense, it's an easier task than looking at, say, the Pentateuch or, or something of that sort. I think the second general thing that I'd say about Amos is, is, is this. Um, um, there are some theologians who consider this book, and certainly this portion of Scripture, the Minor and Major Prophets, as the high point of Old Testament revelation. It's at, they set very much intention with the old priestly tradition, with its emphasis upon sacrifice and ritual and observances of one sort and another. But when we get to the Minor Prophets, um, what happens in, in Amos is that it moves genuine faith away from mere cult, um, the observations, the, uh, the maintaining of rituals, to something much more profound, something internal, something that's to do with practice in living in an, in an everyday sense, and in a really important way, in a very, very interesting move towards personal piety, not just the behavior of the, of the tribe. So all I want to do tonight is give you a flavor of this book. Um, I was talking to Stephen this morning, and um, uh, we, we were debating, you know, how long would it take you to read right through Amos? He thought 40 minutes. I think you'd probably do it in about 25 so, if I achieve anything tonight, and again, this was Stephen's observation to me this morning, if anybody goes home and wants to read Amos after tonight, it's been an overwhelming success. So, let's hope I can persuade you of how interesting this figure um, really is. So, it's just an overview, um, introducing Amos. Uh, hope you've been meditating on the little picture up there for a while with a roaring lion. Um, that's a photograph of Amos from 732 B.C., taken on a single-lens reflex camera, uh, and a number of other little icons in, uh, in and about there, weighing scales, a picture of some kind of worship going on, of course, the text of, the text of Amos. I hope all of these will become a little bit more clear by the time we get to, uh, to the end. So let's begin then with simply two scenes, first of all. And here's my first scene, a place called Tekoa. It's not exactly a holiday destination, and you're not going to hear anything now, right? It's not exactly a holiday destination. It's a place that is characterized by a number of things. It's been described as one of the driest and most poisoned regions of our planet, a desolate and haggard world. We're in an area that's substantially desert. I've, I've taken this from one of the old commentators, uh, an interesting phrase that I think evokes something of the eeriness and the silence of this place. At night, you hear the wild beasts howl. At dawn, you see the blackened sights of the deserted camps with the loose stones that mark the nomads' graves. On three sides, it's surrounded by the dreary, gray, limestone hills of Judea. On the fourth, to the east, the land slopes down to what this writer calls the great shimmering vat of the Dead Sea, with the red hills of Moab well beyond. All reveal a human life almost as vagabond and nameless as that of the beasts. 
a very dreary world, empty and silent. And I think that's the first set of images I want you to conjure up in your mind. The place is called Tekoa, poor, uh, eerie, dry, and I think to our modern eye, alienating, not the kind of place you'd like to live. And here's the, a map of it. It's located here, you can see, um, I would say about 10 to 12 miles south of Jerusalem. Looking out over to the east to the great shimmering vat of the Dead Sea with Moab, the hills of Moab, right here beyond. That's, that's our first scene. Our second scene takes place at a place called Bethel. And Bethel is about 10 or 12 miles to the north of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's sort of really about halfway between these two sites. What a contrast. In a space of about 20 miles, we move from a dreary and haggard world to Bethel. Now, Bethel was a shrine that was set up, and I'll tell you a little bit about the history of this later, but it was set up during the time of Jeroboam I, who became king of Israel. I'll say a little bit more about Jeroboam in a minute, but just to get the context of this, um, you get something about the, the formation of Bethel as a shrine is to be found in 1 Kings chapter 12. And I'll just read the verse um, to you, because a good deal of tonight, I just want to be reading the text of Amos. Um, and really, honestly, it will speak for itself much more eloquently than I can do. At any rate, 1 Kings 12 says this, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Now, I'll explain a bit more about this in a minute, but this is the time of the so-called division of the kingdom into Israel and Judah. Jeroboam had taken over. I suppose the rightful king should have been Rehoboam, who was in the Davidic line. Jeroboam took over the kingship, and he wanted to consolidate his kingship by having people go to worship not at Jerusalem, which would have been the old capital, but at this new site, Bethel. What can we say? about the shrine and the religion that's practiced at Bethel. Bethel is the nerve center of Israel's religious culture and its spiritual power. It's a busy place. It's a place of considerable sophistication and complexity of life. Why? Because it's rich. It has control of the trading routes, and it's able to levy customs in a lucrative way from all the trade that is going through it. It's remarkably prosperous, but also remarkably decadent. It's a rich society, and it's a society where indeed religion is enthusiastically practiced. It exists, though, on exorbitant interest rates. Interest rates that are usually applied to the farmers who, when they go into penury, find themselves in a, an impossible, a dire economic um, situation. And so there is an unscrupulous oppression of the small farmer that goes on from the religious nerve center of the Israelite kingdom. I want you to contrast those two scenes, Tekoa, dreary, deathly, silent. Bethel, busy, bustling, rushing, sophisticated, complex. Now, we can't understand this story terribly well 
unless we understand something about what I've already hinted at, the two kingdoms. And the first thing to notice if you look at this map here, of course, is that Tekoa is south of this line between the darker green, the darker green and the brighter green below. That's because by this stage we have two kingdoms. The two kingdoms are to the north, the kingdom of Israel, and to the south, the kingdom of Judea. Now here's a map of um, what the kingdoms would have looked, looked like back at about 932 or whatever, with the red line, of course, showing what modern Israel, the modern Israel territory, uh, really is. I, I thought it would be quite useful just to show how up-to-date these maps really are. Here's a map of modern-day Israel with, with a number of famous places now on it, so you can connect this to the biblical text. I mean, this is the Gaza Strip. And actually, Gaza really appears in our story here um, from Amos, and we'll see that later. Uh, this will be the West Bank, uh, occupied territories with um, Palestinians, as you can see, occupying a very, very disparate mosaic in the contemporary world of the West Bank, and of course to the north, going back to the Six-Day War, here, the Golan Heights. You can see how this maps on to very closely the period that we're talking about with the territory of, of Israel. So what can we say then about these two kingdoms? How did it come about? After the death of Solomon, in around about 931, all the Israelite tribes bar two, Judah and Benjamin, refused to accept Solomon's son Rehoboam as the king of Israel. Uh, most of uh, the tribes of Israel no longer wanted to give allegiance to the Davidic line. And so there was a revolt under Jeroboam, who was not of the Davidic line, and the result was that he was proclaimed king over all Israel at Shechem. Judah refused to accept the new king, and later was joined by Benjamin in refusing to acknowledge Jeroboam as their legitimate king. And the consequence was the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom, known as Israel, under Jeroboam I, and the southern kingdom, known as Judah, under Rehoboam. Now, all of that happened some 200 years or so before the story of Amos comes on the scene. Amos is active in this region around 750 B.C., and it's slightly confusing when you read the first verse because the reign of Jeroboam that's talked about there is actually Jeroboam II, not Jeroboam I. You read the first verse of Amos chapter 1, you'll see that he was active during the time of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom and King Uzziah in the southern kingdom. Now, all of this is remarkably significant, just that little first verse, for understanding, I think, the whole first two or three chapters of, of Amos. So let me introduce now, we've had two scenes, Tekoa and Bethel, we've two kingdoms, the northern and southern, and now we have a herdsman, and that herdsman is Amos. Now, there are the two scenes in the background. The first thing that we get from Amos chapter 1 is the words of Amos one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, you see the context that he's coming from, impoverished. He's a poor farmer. He's a herdsman. He's from a dreary world, and he's coming into a world of remarkable sophistication. He's going to sound and look like a country bumpkin compared with the sophisticates that are at the shrine in Bethel. Um, it'd be like going from Ballymena to Canterbury. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> And then when you get to Canterbury to bring your message, the nerve center of the nation, what under the sun do you say? Now, what makes it even more interesting is, and this is what's emboldened me to do this talk tonight, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. I am no Old Testament scholar nor the son of a prophet. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs, Amos says in chapter 7. He has no background in religion, professional religion. He has no background in the prophetic tradition. 
He has learned his theology not at the theological schools of Beersheba or Dan or Gilgal. He's learned them as a shepherd meditating as he looks out to the dreary limestone hills of Judea. It's there that he has seen the real realities of life. How would people in Bethel think about that? He'd come from Tekoa to Bethel. He came from the south to the north. The words of an outsider. And it's therefore no surprise that the prophet Amaziah comes to him and says, if you read through in Amos chapter 7, then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. Why? He comes from south of the border. Not only has he no personal background in prophesying, theology, or religion, he's also, in one sense, a political deviant. He's coming from though that place that would not recognize Jeroboam I as the legitimate king of Israel. So here we have someone blunt, actually remarkably informed, passionate, and I think by the time we get to the end of this tonight, you'll realize he's a pretty uncomfortable guy to be around. I really hate to see him walking in here, here tonight. So you're Amos, and you've moved up to preach your sermon at Bethel. What would you do? What would, be the, what would be your first approach? Would you say, um, we need a seminar here, fellas? Or uh, maybe we should do a fact-finding um, enterprise on the economy? Or, or what would you do? Well, Amos uh, does what I suppose most prophets do. He starts to roar. He starts to shout. But the interesting thing is, he's not the only one who's roaring. There's a lion that's roaring. <clears throat> Francis thought there was a little bit of tartar on the teeth of that lion. I, I don't know enough about lions, but the Lord roars from Zion. When does a lion roar? Why does a lion roar? Mostly a lion roars when it's in the hunt, not when it's stalking, but when it's in full flight about to land on the prey. Bah! Did you jump? That's what the prey would do. It would be frozen for a split second enough for the lion to pounce. God is roaring and is just about to pounce. He's just about to land in judgment. Who on? That's Amos's first tactic. I look forward to this next Sunday, Steve. Where does he begin? Well, he, he begins, I think, with what I'm going to call a roll call of the nations. And we need to go back to our map here just for a minute to refresh your mind. Here's Bethel, 10 miles to the north of Jerusalem, Tekoa, 10 or 12 miles to the south, the northern and southern kingdom. And he's got a message for the people at Bethel. Where would you begin? The Lord roars from Zion and calls down judgment upon Damascus. That's Syria. Why? They had been guilty of war crimes. You read this in chapter 1. The text says, why is the, why is the lion roaring in judgment, descending upon Syria? Syria threshed Gilead with sledges, having iron teeth. Scholars really don't know what this looks like, neither do I, but you can just imagine some kind of machine with, uh, with teeth plowing people, ripping them to shreds. And that's why they come under divine judgment. Where does he go next? Gaza. Probably, probably the modern state of Israel would like number two here. Philistia. Why? Engaging in slave trading and a depopulation policy. The text says she took whole communities and sold them to Edom. 
Not clear exactly what was going on, except that whole populations were taken and were traded in some depopulation policy in order to evacuate territory and sell them to Edom. Edom, traditionally one of Israel's uh, long-standing enemies. Tyre is number three. Why? Human trafficking and treachery of one sort or another. Hard to know what the treachery is, but she sold whole communities of captives also to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. Jehovah God, Yahweh, is judging Tyre for not holding to treaties that they'd already signed up to, and also because they became engaged in in human trafficking. Now, you're sitting here listening to this sermon at Bethel, and what are you thinking? Syria, good job, they deserve that. Philistia, never liked the Philistines. Tyre, wonder where he's going to go next. Well, here we go. Number four, Edom. God judges them for not letting go of bitter memories. Vindictive anger. The text was remarkable as I read this in a Northern Ireland context, I think. He pursued his brother with the sword and slaughtered the women of the land. His anger raged continually, and his fury flamed unchecked. There was no end, constantly stoking up bitterness, constantly like, like, like picking at a scab, going back to an old hurt, and constantly revisiting it and stimulating it again and again, and the anger boils over, and that displeases, displeases uh, Jehovah. Ammon is the next one. Inhuman expansionism and aggression, I call this, and I just get this from the dreadful text. He ripped open pregnant women in order to extend his borders. There's something that's bothering Amos and God about territorial expansionism and about the price of that and about human aggression one to another. Six, Moab. Moab is the next port of call. And Amos calls down judgment for what I've described here, trying to make sense of the text, as a sacrilegious treatment of one's enemies. He burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. Now, where have we got to so far with this roll call of the nations? I think there are two things we might just, just think it's actually quite important. What can we glean from this sermon so far? It's not a Presbyterian sermon because so far he's got six points, and you're not finished yet. I've got two here. One is Jehovah is no local deity. He judges the nations. And it's interesting, in all the things that were mentioned there, there's not a single reference to them disobeying God's law because they didn't have it. They were disobeying what you might call human conscience or disobeying just natural human rights, natural revelation, nothing to do with special revelation through the Scriptures or indeed through the prophets. I think also that this was a clever way for Amos to secure a hearing. He's calling down judgment on Israel's traditional enemies. And those in the audience, I think, I've already hinted at this, would have been delighted to hear that God was bringing fire and judgment down upon their traditional, their traditional enemies. But of course, he's not finished. The key point here is that he begins, of course, to strike closer to home. Let's remind ourselves of where we've got on the map. Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. 
reading your Old Testament, you'll have come across the Moabites and the Edomites and the Ammonites. And if you're like me, generally you whip over those pretty quickly and you don't think too much about them. And you think, well, I'm really glad I'm not doing the reading on Sunday when I have to worry about the Ammonites and so on. But this is the context in which, in which Amos is operating. So where does he go next? His own kingdom, Judah. The southern kingdom, getting a bit close for comfort, but at least it's still the southern kingdom. And it's interesting now for the first time, it's God's law and idolatry. That is the cause, disobeying God's law, that is the cause of judgment being called upon Judah. The lion is already in full flight about to pounce because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His decrees. They've been led astray by false gods. Amos 2 verse 4. And of course you know where he goes next. This is where he's been heading for the whole time. Israel itself. And Israel itself, of course, has by far the longest stretch of condemnation. These are the people now, remember, in Bethel. They think that they are on the receiving end of God's mercy. They're enthusiastic about their religion. They think that God has blessed them. They have material riches stunningly greater than anything that Amos has ever seen in Tekoa all of which they would have considered a sign of divine blessing and God with them. But they are perverting justice. They are oppressing the poor, and they are practicing corrupt religion. Let's read the lengthier section. Um, I think lengthier than any of the other little gobbets or snippets that I've used before. Why is the lion roaring? For three transgressions and for four I will not turn away the judgment because... They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Farmer with a few bad harvests has lost everything. They're put in the market and they'll be sold for a pair of sandals. That's the worth of a person who's not contributing anymore to the riches and luxury in the economy of the northern kingdom. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. And then corrupt religion. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Perhaps the farmer has just a garment or two left. He promises that he'll give more in a few weeks' time. He gives the garment as a pledge. The law said, of course, a garment should be returned to a person in pledge at night time because of the cold. But no, they're lying on the garments beside every altar that had been taken in pledge. If there is judgment, it's judgment that's coming on Israel itself. So what I think I'd like to do now is to just pick out several of the key targets that Amos has in mind. I mean, there are many more than the few that I'll identify here, but I just want to pick out three or four of the things that he really has in his sights, and then I'll do a couple of the general themes that run their way through the book, and then we'll have a few questions and go home. What are Amos's key targets? And this is where I think, when I read these key targets, I mean, it's really hard to not think that he's speaking into the 21st century. I hope that you feel that at least as much as I do. Luxury is the first one. I'm just going to read the verse and then try to say a few things about it in each case. You lie on beds adorned with ivory. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. Amos 6 verse 4. What sort of a society is this? It's an extravagant society. The reference to ivory inlays, I think, is about the ostentatious display of riches. It's a showy society, a society that's more into image than anything else. It's extravagant, it's conspicuous consumption, it's self-satisfied, and it's ostentatious. 
It's also indolent. I mean, that word, you lie on beds adorned with ivory. If you read this, and you need a Hebrew scholar to tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, but quite often that has been translated, you stretch out on beds adorned with ivory. In that attitude of lounging around with affectation, a kind of society that trades on indolence, a society where if you're not indolent, you're grubby, having to work too much. And it's indulgent. You dine on the choice lambs and fattened calves. There is no concern for the future economy. It's the choicest delicacies from the lambs that you eat right now. More can come from somewhere else. There's no sense of responsibility in, con in consumption. It's just indulgent from start to finish. You strum away on your harps like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. Now you can understand Amos 6, 5 and 6. You can understand why a man from Tekoa might not be too interested in drinking wine by the bowlful and using the finest lotions. I mean, this is a farmer that's talking about this. This is a farmer who's brought up those choice lambs. In fact, he's such a poor farmer that he's dressing sycamore figs. Do you remember that? That's pressing them to bring them to, to, to maturity a little bit more quickly. Let me translate that into, into my language. I think that this is what I call a pop culture. More interested in novelty than in quality. I, I think you could translate that first bit. You strum away on your guitars just as if you were Elvis himself. Novelty, a pop, pop culture, and it's more than that, it's a vulgar society. Swilling down fine wine by the bowlful or by the bucketful. I remember once hearing Victor Reed, who's the principal of the Belfast Bible College, saying, it's like drinking liqueurs in Toby jugs. Not about the subtlety of the fine taste, it's just swilling down as much as you can. And it's a vain culture, using only the finest lotions. I know the text doesn't say that they were obsessed with labels, but, but really, you know, it had to be the right, the, right type of, the right type of lotion. And I really apologize for this, but Stephen told me I really had to do this. So here it is for you, Stephen. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. I, I, I have to read the next bit. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to their husbands, bring us some drinks. Amos 4.1. Women are, have all, are often the trendsetters in society, and I think that Amos is being pretty blunt here. I think that he looks at pampered women in his society and thinks that they are indirectly perpetrating exploitation which reminds us that we're not only guilty, I think, for the sins we commit, but also for the ones that we inspire. And perhaps that's the kind of thing he's getting at here. Um, so so what, might this, what sort of society might this be? First of all, go and look up Deuteronomy 32.14 to learn about Bashan. Bashan had the finest cattle, uh, or regarded as some of the finest cattle in the in the ancient world. Psalm 22.12 refers to it as well. They are well-fed, sleek. And this becomes, I suppose, a really inelegant image or metaphor for the women in society. But at any rate, it's a, it's a reckless and a flamboyant lifestyle of those society trendsetters that Amos has in his, um, in his sights. Um, they are living off oppression. They are living off crushing the needy in order for self-stimulation and the like. And as I say, it's based on the exploitation of the poor. So if you read through the book, I mean, interesting thing to do, maybe, maybe do it tonight or something, read through the nine chapters, just see how many texts bother Amos over questions of, of luxury. Don't even need to translate it into the 21st century. His second target, and of course he's many other courts, 
I've used the scales of justice here just as a, um, a little aid memoir for thinking about the judicial system, um, thinking about the criminal justice system, um, and thinking about, uh, uh, about the, the justice uh, uh, practices of, of, of his society. Now, Amos thinks and sees here complete corruption. What he sees is a judicial system that is in place to reinforce itself and to support the establishment of the society, not to, at all to be interested in the redistribution of wealth or to be interested at all in social justice. This is a theme that's very well known in, in, in Amos and very well known, of course, to, um, to those of us who have read much about Amos at all. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Hard for a poor man to go to court. Costs a great deal. I remember hearing uh, Nick Wallerstorff saying once um, that the health of a society should never be judged by how well the rich survive. The health of any society is how well the marginal survive. Now, if we were to take the health of any nation by how well its poorest are doing, I think we get a very different picture from the stance of economic growth and so on that we trade in very commonly. And all. But Amos has his eye upon these. The judicial system, first and foremost, should be there to protect the innocent, to protect those who are poor. But here what happens is when they go into, uh, into debt because of the bad harvests, they are further taxed and taxed more and more. And so they're constantly being ground on. Um, and Amos really is, is tired of this. The economy. This is a society that, of course, and we'll get to this in a second, that's deeply religious. But it's also a society that is obsessed with the market. It's obsessed with market forces, and it is really obsessed with trade. So much so that Amos has this really biting little uh, section, um, I think, from, from chapter 5, where he says, Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? When, you know, when will the religious festival be over so we can get back out into the marketplace? When will the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? But it's not just marketing. It's the way the marketing is being done that is even more deeply offensive. Skimping on the measure. Boosting the price cheating with dishonest scales. There's that verse again, buying the poor with silver and the needy for, with, for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. This is a money-mad society, uh, a society that will stoop to, to, to no ends. There's no ends beyond which it will not go to make another buck. I've heard it said, um, one interpretation is that whenever, whenever a farmer um, would end up uh, being completely destroyed, he would pick up a little dust from the ground and he would put it on his head as a sign of mourning. There's a verse in Amos somewhere, I can't remember where it is, maybe you could go and look for it, where, where Amos implies the rich are so land hungry that they're even lusting for the little bit of soil that's symbolically put on the head of a farmer because he has nothing left. They're sold for a pair of sandals. Even the sweepings are put in to the market. And then, of course, another target is religion. Now, I've already mentioned Bethel. But I think it would be quite interesting just for a second to have a look at the two or three shrines that are the real focus of the contempt that Amos has for the religious practice of the northern kingdom. 
And there's some things that maybe bite pretty closely to home when we look at the kind of religious practices that have gone on. Before we get to them, though, let's have a look at the heritage of those shrines. There are three in particular that he identifies. And you can see them here. Bethel, of course, we've already pointed that out. Just a little bit to the north-south of Shechem is Gilgal. And here, Beersheba. Now, I've told you a little bit about the history of, of the setup of, of Bethel uh, by Jeroboam I um, as a shrine to consolidate his political uh, leadership in, in, the, in the northern kingdom of, of Israel. Um, um, but he also talks about Gilgal and, interestingly, also about Beersheba. And, and that's interesting for this reason that it looks as though even during the divided kingdom, Beersheba had such an important place in the memory of Israel that they would actually trek south of the border to come back to a shrine because of its associations and memories. Now, what do these three places stand for? In fact, Bethel, of course, is a history well beyond, or well, well before, Jeroboam I. Bethel, of course, was a place of vision. This was the site of Jacob's dream. If you read Genesis 28, verse 16, the text says that Jacob records, the Lord is in this place. It's a place of vision. It was also a place of renewal. When Jacob was returning, Genesis 35, from Paddan Aram, he called the place where God had talked with him Bethel, second reference to it in the, in the Old Testament. This is a place not only of initial vision, but it's a place of renewed vision. Jacob considered it a place of, of renewal. He was on his way to meet Joseph. As consecrated, consecrated as a shrine, of course, by Jeroboam I, as I've already said. Gilgal is the site where, Joseph, or where Joshua first encamped when he led the people of Israel into the Promised Land. So it, it, it occupied an important um, uh, point in their memories because this was the first possession of the promised land. And you remember that when they enter there, they set up 12 stones in the river as a remembrance of their deliverance. The 12 stones were to be a monument that every time they looked at them, Joshua says, they would remember their deliverance from Egypt. I mean, I've always been interested in those 12 stones. Um, they didn't build a cathedral. Uh, they didn't build an enormous, impressive um, superstructure or edifice. They just set up 12 stones, one for each of the tribes. And why did they set up stones? Because they'd been making bricks. It was, a, it was a reminder of the hardship that they had endured in Egypt, and a reminder that God was moving them into somewhere completely new, a promised land. And that's why, as I say on the screen, Joshua made it his headquarters. And that's why Israel's first king was confirmed in his kingship at Gilgal. It stood for everything that was hopeful, everything that was a remembrance of Yahweh's love for them and Yahweh's directing them into the promised land. And then Beersheba. As I've already said, it's in the southern kingdom. It was here that Abraham received the word that God was with him from Abimelech, if you read Genesis 21. Isaac had a night vision there where he's told, Fear not, for I am with you. And Jacob, on his way to Egypt, is told in a vision not to fear when he gets to Beersheba. It's a place that says, Sanctuary. Do not be afraid. So here's Bethel, a place of vision and renewal and hope. Gilgal, a place of memory of God's goodness, and a place of when you've moved into this promised land, Jehovah is with you. Beersheba, a place of learning not to be afraid. This is the heritage of the three shrines that are at the center of Amos's preaching. 
And so, what would you expect Amos to say? When he's telling the people what they should do now, once he has called down God's judgment upon them, you might expect him to say, go to Bethel and you will have a renewed vision. Go to Gilgal and you will learn not to fear. You will be reminded of God's goodness coming out of, 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 of Egypt. This is what you might expect him to say. What does he say? Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. These are the places, despite their heritage, that they are sinning most of all in the religious centers, in the very places that historically looked as if they promised so much. And so religion is one of his key targets. It is religion that has gone Celtic. It's religion that is decadent. What kind of religion really, really is it? Well, like much religion today, ooh, there was generous giving. There was eager participation. There was enthusiastic praise. There was dutiful practice. These people loved their faith. These people loved participating in their faith. But Amos sees it as rotten from top to bottom. Let's just read the verses, and I hope you'll see in the verses the diagnosis that I've given on the right-hand side. Such biting sarcasm in this passage from Amos 4. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Didn't need to bring them every morning, but bring them anyway. Your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for that is what you love to do. They're generously giving, but they're very proud of it. They're eagerly involved, but they're bragging about it. The bottom line is looking good, but it's motivated by trying to look good. Yahweh's response, I hate. I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. So go to Gilgal only if you want to sin. Go to Bethel only if you want to sin. And this is what he really says. Seek me and live. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. We'll be glad to know I'm almost through. Just a final couple of points about the major themes that I think snake their way right through this whole book. We've had a look at the key targets. Three themes that I think are sort of rather scary themes in some ways, but I think it's really important that this sort of take-home message is the kind of thing that I think I want to remember from this quite remarkable, quite remarkable prophet. Now, quite often, I don't know, some of you might have been involved in debates about predestination and about election and so on. And usually, when people talk about these things, it's in the context of when you're elect, you're secure. And we should be thankful for it. It's often talked about in those, in those positive terms. I don't hear very often Amos's view of election. Because to Amos, election is election to judgment. Here's what he says. Jehovah says, you only have I elected. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will bless you. Therefore, I will give you riches. Therefore, I will protect you. No. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Uh, being elect makes you yet more culpable than if you're an Edom or a Moabite or from Gaza or from Ammon. Punishment is coming because they had been chosen. 
and because they had actually violated the very nature of the commitments that they should have returned. So election is an important theme, but it's election to judgment. Another major theme that comes through is the day of the Lord. Now, Amos, I think, is the first person in the Old Testament to use this concept of the day of the Lord. And, and it is, a, it is um, a concept that looks to the future. In that sense, it's what the theologians might call eschatological. The day when the Lord will come. The day of the Lord when we will be vindicated. A day of reckoning when Israel will be shown to be vindicated over all the nations. And that's why I think Amos began with that sermon attacking the other six. It felt like the day of the Lord was coming. Uh, Joseph Mays, an Old Testament scholar, had this to say about the day of the Lord. On that day, Jehovah rises against his enemies, goes into battle, and defeats his foes in a setting of cosmic and historical gloom and commotion. The worshipers cry out, Yahweh is with us, and they long with confident anticipation for the victory of Yahweh over the nations to become fact so that the field of history would be left to them and their national aspirations. There is an idea that, he, that Amos went, went to speak at Bethel on the day when they celebrated the day of the Lord, and the worshipers would have been crying out, God is with us. Amos's judgment is not exactly the same. Here's what he says about the day of the Lord, repeatedly. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light, because you're chosen for judgment. On the day I punish Israel for our sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. I, I will pull down Canterbury. I will pull down Assemblies College. Ah. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished. Amos 8, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs of the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. And finally, social justice. I'm just going to finish by reading this very famous verse, which I suppose I think is the uh, leitmotif, the, the sort of symbol of the entire book of Amos as I, as I read it and I. And this, I think, is the real high point of Old Testament revelation. Religion is not important. Ritual and observance is not important. It's internal transformation and social justice. And with this, I'll finish. First again, and then I'll get the second half. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Aware with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Why don't you go and have a read at those nine chapters? And then next week, tell me where I was wrong. Okay.